Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Natalie Portman. Seriously, there is no Todd and Wes. It's been her the whole time. She's just that good. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Surfer Boy Pizza. Catch waves of pepperoni and mozzarella delivered right to your door. Surf's up at Surfer Boy Pizza. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers, writers, actors, a producer, uh, one willing and one unwilling. (laughs) And uh, we bring all that, you know, kind of historical insight into the the filmmaking process to look at films and try to analyze them, see what uh, we can learn about the filmmaking process and movies at large and uh, just little fun tidbits here and there. Uh, one of the fun things about that is we're, we get things wrong. And I, I like that we're not afraid to get things wrong because it's at the end of the day, it's art and we're just kind of giving it our pass just because, you know, we more or less do this for a living. We haven't made a movie for a living, at least not in the capacity of what we're discussing. Like, I don't know about you. I've been in like films before uh, as an actor, but I haven't like shot my own movie. I haven't outside of like a short film, like a feature length. We haven't done any feature length work for the most part yet. yet. But doesn't mean that we're right or wrong just because of, you know, our experience. It's at the end of the day, I think what what we do best is we just kind of put on our hat and analyze from what the story is telling us, what we know about filmmaking, you know, cinematography, writing, best practices, things we've learned along the way. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, there, there's that, that Dunning-Kruger effect uh, that is really interesting. I feel like maybe, I don't know about you, but I... I think the more I learn, the more I feel like I don't know anything. And that's Mm -hmm. the other half that people don't usually talk about with the the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is the idea that the less you know about something, the more you act in confidence that you know everything about it. And so like if I were to sit here and talk about like birds and bird watching, I could sound really confident without knowing anything about it, you know, because I I maybe took some intro course or I I read a blurb on a, on whatever. Uh, And so there's always this, this impact of how much do you really know versus how much do you actually know? Because the more you, I feel like you, you get to know something, uh, the more possibilities there are. I think like there's just times I know that I skim through things instead of like taking a, a, a minute to really flesh out an idea that I'm having. And I realized this editing last week's episode, uh, return of the King where I, I skimmed through this idea of the 180 rule, um, and how it was being applied in certain ways in interesting ways. And, it probably came off as more like absolutist than I intended it uh, because I was just like, oh, this is an interesting idea that I think they're playing with. And uh, the 180 rule, when you break it, gives an interesting emotional feeling uh, to the viewer that's, you know, trying to translate into a story moment. Something in the story is shifting. Uh, and there was a couple of moments in Return of the King that I was like, oh, I think they're incorporating this idea without moving the camera. And I didn't really flesh out some of those things. But at you, you have to make your peace with imperfect uh, delivery on these things because you and I, I may take notes and I may have notes, but we, we spend 
as little time as possible making this thing just because I, I think, I don't know about you, but I, I like the conversation that comes out of it and I like being open to new possibilities, but also don't want to spend, you know, 50 hours in my week being precise. Um, yeah, I don't know what, what, what do you make of all that garbled nonsense? No, I, no, I, I think it's a, a great lead into this to this film actually, because we're going to say, uh, we're going to have our opinions and we're going to, and say some things. And I don't necessarily know that they are, that they are correct. But the point is also that like, at least when you're talking about interpretation, that it's, it's a, it comes from a real place of like a real initial feeling that you had. And yeah, when it comes to the podcast also, I would say, you know, uh, perfection is the enemy of good, which means essentially like you know to get that last 15 percent of perfection it it is unsurmountably um a lot more time right and 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 effort uh, so i think that that doing our best with what we can is is the way to go right so like we'll be 85 percent uh on this you know for for the foreseeable future i would say i mean you know that being said i also think that like this is a very honest discussion that we always have we come into like you come to it with a lot of notes. You make a, you put a ton of time into this and a ton of effort. And I mean, I put some effort in, but I think that the point is that we come at it from our own, the way we like to, to talk about movies and the, to digest movies. We talk about it all the time that, that even though we might be wrong or not wrong, even though we might have gotten some, get some things, you know, not exactly the way the filmmaker had intended doesn't mean that it is wrong because it might, it was the way that we ingested it, right? Maybe on that day we were having a bad day. And so we didn't get something that we should have maybe gotten on a second viewing or something like that. And that's a personal thing that I think everybody experiences when they go to, uh, to when you watch a movie, sometimes you're in the mood for a movie like men and sometimes you are not. And it really depends on how, uh, like your, where you are when you digest it too. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. And I think that, that the other thing that we do is we don't ever really destroy films. And I love that about this. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to so many people about this podcast and, and the thing that I'm most proud of about it, or one of the things is that, is that we honor the art of making movies or just making anything in general, like having the balls to say, I'm going to write something and then I'm going to put a lot of money and time and effort behind it. And if it turns out like shit, you know what? I did my very best. That is 90% more than most people will ever do. And so I don't think that we'll, we'll ever go through a movie and just completely tear it apart. We might make fun of it in points and we might point out bad things that bad decisions and stuff that we would have done differently. But like you said, you know, the more we learn about filmmaking, the more we understand that it, there are no rules. There are rules. And then when you understand them, you can learn how to break them in a way that might be beneficial to the story or not. Absolutely. And well said, I think the, the nice part, God, here we go again. Um, the nice part about art is the, the level of subjectivity that comes along with it. Right. If, if I paint, you know, a horse and then I show it to you and you see a dog, you know, are you wrong? You know, just because my intention was to do a thing doesn't mean I accomplished that intention. And so I am exceedingly 
less and less concerned with reading up on what an artist intended. Yeah. I don't really care. You know, I'm more and more concerned with what did they convey? What landed? I, I think that's the more important part, especially for me as a filmmaker um, and, and as an artist. I can't get too caught up in, oh, this is what they intended. Therefore, this is what I take away. I have to be more thinking about what did I take away so that I can improve my art in order to get my intentions across. Um, because if you had an intention that didn't land, uh, I would say that's your failure as an artist. Um, not, you know, the fact that you made something that didn't live up to your own expectations. Uh, the question is, did, did you have a message? And if not, that's fine too. But I think most artists, you know, have a, have a message or a feeling that they're trying to convey. And if you don't convey those things, those are the things I think we as artists want to improve on. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, uh, well, I wanted to expound upon that just for a second. So this is an interesting question that I have for you then. So as a, as a filmmaker, as a writer, you're trying to get an intention across, obviously, but how do you feel if someone walks away from something that you made with a different result as a film because you're coming from it right now you're talking from a viewer mm -hmm. but from a filmmaker point of view how would you feel if you if you painted a horse and someone saw a dog how how would that make you feel i mean i guess it depends on the project right you know like if you're wanting it for, to be ambiguous that's one uh, thing but so anyway yeah yeah that's a that's a good question i've i've had that happen before not a ton but uh a couple times and it's both it's both things it's weird because on the one hand there is a frustration with it like damn it i didn't tell my story properly but the there's this other part of me that's like man that was really cool like that isn't at all what i was thinking when i wrote this and whenever i you know shot this and when i edited this i thought i was communicating x and i realized where i messed up along the way for them to come away with you know r like i just completely you know different different thing and it, it's a it's an interesting feeling. It doesn't feel necessarily bad all the way through because you're like, oh, how did they arrive at that? And then I start mm. thinking about like, where did they get that impression? And I guess it does circle back to me feeling like a failure as a storyteller. Uh, but there is that part of me that's like, man, but they they were connecting. There's these two parts of our beings that uh, were connecting with each other. There's this part of me that they connected with that connected with this part of them. And even though it wasn't my intention, there was still a connection there. And that's still valid. The fact that they walked away remembering this other part of their life or this other feeling that they've had in their life. Um, that's a still nice feeling. That's a cool feeling to think, you know, maybe they didn't see what I wanted them to see, but they saw something else in themselves. And that's pretty cool. That's, that's still satisfying in a completely different way. Um, though it would have been more satisfying if the intention would have been more ambiguous in nature. Um, yeah, that's a fun gotcha. question, man. Nice. That is a fun question. And, and like I was saying, I think it, it evolves with the, the type of project you're working on project like men might be, I mean, you, you have to make a movie like this, knowing that people are not going to, to understand it the way that you're trying to convey it. There's just no, there's no way that, that a lot of people, maybe even if most people do, there's going to be a ton of people that do not. And you have to be okay with that. And I think probably Alex Garland is okay with that. Uh, you know, but a movie like, I don't know, uh, Infinity War, you know, you kind of, you kind of, it's kind of more on the nose, right? If people don't get it. It's definitely your fault. <laughs> you know? uh, and that might be a bad example because that's still pretty deep and, and yeah. heavy. So, yeah. but anyway, sure. Nice. at least for my nine-year-old. So. <laughs>
Anyway, yeah, so so today uh, we are, if you haven't gotten it yet, uh, today we're covering Alex Garland's Men, uh, which I think is just just came out of theaters. I think it, we, I saw it got the last showing uh, in theater, so like the very last one. So if you haven't seen it, please pause the episode and uh, wait for it to go streaming or something. I don't know, because uh, we're going to spoil a lot of stuff. For sure. We're going to briefly touch on cinematography. Uh, one of the ways they show disconnect through framing. Uh, we'll also look very heavily into some, uh, the story and writing, some of the lessons that they're trying to get at in the film, as well as uh, the symbolism um, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick, very quick synopsis of the film. A young woman goes on a solo vacation to the English countryside following the death of her ex-husband. It's written and directed by Alex Garland, cinematography by Rob Hardy. Starring Jesse Buckley as Harper, Rory Kinnear as Jeffrey, uh, Papa Esiedu as James, and Gail Rankin as Riley. Until you give your love, there's nothing more that we can do. Apple from the garden? Yeah, it was delicious. No, 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 no. Mustn't do that. Forbidden fruit. Oh, God, sorry, I... I, I'm joking. Oh, Tormented. It feels more like haunted. Yeah. Something happened. My husband went upstairs to our balcony and let himself go. You must wonder why you drove him to it. Why I didn't drive him to it. I thought it'd be true. But if you had given him the chance to apologize. He'd still be alive. What? A man followed me out of the woods. He was stalking me. What makes you say that? I saw him twice. Twice? I don't know if he saw you once. Play a game. You hide. I'll see. You must feel an awful sense of guilt. Stay away from me. What are you doing? What are you? So I want to hear all the things, um, but I think. It's it's pretty easy to ask whether or not you like like this one, but to me, I think more important is uh, how you felt, you know, while watching yeah. it. And so, yeah, tell me about your experience with this thing. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you actually distinguished the two of like if I liked it or how I felt because uh, I I felt gross the whole time. Um, you know, uh, I don't necessarily know that that was the intention. Uh, you know, I think probably uh, women have a different experience in this film than men. And I think that's the point, right? And, I mean, hopefully that's the point because that's how I felt. So I I think the whole time I felt icky and awkward. And there, here's here's a, a problem that I have with it. Um, okay. 
I'm totally fine with how I felt in the film. I'm totally fine with feeling icky the whole time. I think that was the point. And I think, you know, Alex Garland's point here in a way might be to address to men how women feel a lot, right? Can't go on walks by themselves without fear of this, you know, fear of, you know, being attacked and, and there's always naked men chasing them, um, you know, or like, you know, there's the, the sexual aspect, there's the, the, you know, so and if that's the case, that's, de- that definitely came across the, the problem that I have, if it's any more than that, if it's, if the point is to make, is, is to make the, the feeling a little bit more ingrained in men is that like, there is this whole kind of, kind of, uh, I don't know, almost anti-man uh, sentiment that that's that's going around in just in society right and i understand the point the point you know the i understand the point and that all of these things need to be addressed but i just feel a little bit like it's it's um the word the word man feels very like a much like a bad word to me hmm. and i don't think it's necessarily something that that um has been you know uh, part of my experience i just feel like there's a lot going around that's, it's, you know, if you're a guy, you're inherently bad. And, and that's kind of, it's not what I felt like in the movie, but it's what I felt like after the movie, if that makes sense. I felt like ashamed to be a, a, a dude, even though, you know, I've never done any of these things. Um, I've never like, like any of them, you know, and uh, maybe they're, are people that would say, no, no, that's, that's not true. I'm sure you probably have, and you don't even know it. No, I've never done any of these things. And, or like even, you know, thought I've made anybody feel like this, but it just, it was really good. I'm trying to put these, this into words. It's really, it was really good at making me feel what women probably feel on a daily basis and making me feel like total shit because of it. Hmm. Um, uh, Good. I hope, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I hope that, I hope that that actually like resonates in a way that, um, you know, makes more misogynistic people, whether male or female, uh, understand that and, and, uh, respond in kind in, within society and their decisions and their actions. But, uh, I just felt a little bit like I was berated the whole time because I think, I think that he did a good thing, a really interesting, good thing by, by making all the men played by one, one man, Rory Kinnear is incredible in this movie. Like actually, I don't even, (laughs) I, I have no idea how he did what he did. Um, uh, but it was, it was excellently acted by him and jesse yeah. uh buckley like mm-hmm. I, I i have no words for how amazing this this the the master class they put on was um i thought it was brilliantly directed i thought the the scenes and the shots and cinematography were amazing the tunnel shot is the best shot in the whole movie to me um where she blocks the other end of the tunnel so it just looks like a hall of uh, a hole of black um and that was in the uh in the trailer and the whole time she's standing in there and she's like, she's saying the ha 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 and listening to the echo and walking further in. I just kept saying, don't go in, don't go in, don't go in, don't go in. 
And then that guy standing up at the other end was just the creepiest thing ever. And so I thought creepy wise, I thought it was really good. I just felt a, very much uh, and whatever. People are going to listen to this and they're going to say, oh, you're triggered and, and fine, fine, I'm triggered. <laughs> but I felt it. I felt attacked, you know, um, mm-hmm. in a way, in a way. And I think that's okay. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that that's bad. Yeah. I, I think it's necessary and okay. I'm just saying I don't think I was in the right headspace at the time to see this. Mm-hmm. It, I had to see it. It was the, the last opportunity that I had before it went out of theaters. I wanted to see it on a big screen. I love Alex Garland. I think I wasn't in the right mindset, but I think that the execution was brilliant. I think that the storytelling was brilliant. Uh, the ending, we'll get to that. I think we should talk about that in its own kind of like agreed thing later. But the feeling I had to answer your question in a long way was, was I felt intrigued and scared and tense the entire time and then really dirty after. So if that's what he was getting at, then kudos to you, Alex, you you killed it. (laughs) So I I hope I didn't trigger anybody, you know, honestly, but like that's, that's just kind of, that was kind of my initial takeaway. Yeah. For me, I think uh, slightly different uh, response, slightly the same. I definitely uh, felt gross. I, I just felt more confused because I walk in. I didn't really know what I was walking into. I saw brief glimpses of the trailer, but all I knew was Alex Garland had a new movie out. And so it's going to be about men. And I already got the, the, the tone of it, right, in terms of this is going to be a referendum uh, on men, which is cool. Fine. Like, I'm, I'm all for it. And then somewhere you know towards the end of the film i was like i feel like alex garland is really frustrated with hollywood um this felt like uh like an outlash like he was just really frustrated with making brilliant work and not getting recognized right uh imagine you put out ex machina which to me is one of the better sci-fi films of the past 20 years um, at a minimum and no one watched it, let alone, you know, got any awards recognition like it should have, uh, because science fiction generally is not respected as a, as a genre in, in the award season. And so I think it's just years. And then he puts out devs. And if you walk up to anyone who watches a lot of TV and say, did you see devs? They're going to be like, what is that? You know, they're not. And imagine putting out some really thoughtful, great sci-fi and no one's watching it. And it's just like, he just, I felt like this was him turning the table up, just saying, okay, y'all want to feel something. I'm going to make you feel something. And it's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, And I felt like he designed this to create uh, a talking piece that when you get to that in sequence that we'll, we'll go into detail later, it's designed to be, Oh my God. Have you seen X? Have you seen men? You got to watch it. It's so weird. I don't know if you'll like it, but it's, it's crazy. And I felt like that was kind of uh, him trying to alienate and punish the audience out of his own frustrations uh, in the system. Um, And a 24 is the perfect partner for that because uh, they are the art house, you know, uh, studio now. Uh, even though for a while they started as a, a distributor, they've gotten way more into the production side of things. And so they're still, I guess, a little on the indie side, um, certainly in terms of story type, but in terms of like financing, I, I think they're still 
more independent, but they're, they're getting to the point where I'd put them in the class of like legendary and uh, some of these others. But I, that's, that was how I felt as I was like, I kind of get what you're doing uh, because, and maybe it's me projecting because I'm like, that's kind of how I'm designing some of my stories. Now I just want to fucking, you know, take the ax to the audience and say, how does that feel? How do you feel now? Like, remember me you just want to shake them remember me, <laughs> remember me. um and yeah i think with that it's it's a, a lot easier to process this for me uh with that kind of mindset of uh this was born out of frustration um not because he knew precisely what he wanted to say and precisely what he wanted to communicate he just wanted to punch you in the face one good time. And now I'll go back to my more thoughtful, you know, uh, mm-hmm. very carefully constructed puzzle pieces. Yeah. I, what, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? Even if I'm wrong. Um, and he was like, no, I've been thinking about this for the last 40 years. Um, no, I, I as, I, as I, an I, approach, how do you feel about it? just, I want to punish the audience. <laughs> no, I think honestly, that makes me like the movie more. I'm, I'm really <laughs> glad you said that because I have, I mean, I have that feeling when it comes to like, you know, if I'm making music or something, sometimes I'm just making something like, oh God, so I just don't want to do this and I'll make something completely different. And it feels so much better to just do some, to just do it. Like almost like vomit creativity, whatever happens, happens. It also reminded me of the final line of the, of the film that um, her husband says sitting on the couch and which is almost like a, um, Oh shit. Yeah. It almost makes up. It almost makes up for all of the, everything else that happens in earlier in the movie, like all the terrible men uh, or the terrible man that plays all the, you know, all of Rory Kinnear's characters are awful in every single, you know, whether they're a child, whether they're a, a priest, whether they're, you know, a nice guy who's the, the uh, you know, the, the owner of the house, whether it's the bartender, whatever. They're all terrible, but the last line of the film when her husband's sitting on the couch and just says, I just wanted you to love me or something like that. Yeah. She, he says, this is what you did. And she just looks at him and asks, what do you want from me? And he just says, your love. Yeah. And so I felt like, I I felt like just (laughs) that is, that is a, 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 a shows a symptom, right? That I think that a lot of men have it that we don't talk about, which is, which is we never say what we actually want because what we actually want is, is very, makes us very vulnerable. Hmm. And if it really is your love, you know, a lot of times it manifests itself in other ways, right? So if your love, love language is like physical touch, then really it comes off as I just want sex, hmm. right? Or if it's, if it's things really what it want, it comes off as, as like demanding of, of money or something like that, or like, you know, you work too much or something, but really at its heart, we're all like, we're all little boys wanting mommy to love us. And that's just the last line. Like, you know, when I don't, I'm not counting the, the, you did this because that's very, you know, he blames her. Right. Mm -hmm. But just that last line, it spoke to me in a way that made me think, oh, he's just a child. He's still a child and he's not, he hasn't grown up and he hasn't like, you know, he's not being empathetic and he's, he's just very like me, 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 which makes it seem like a symptom. So, but yeah, looking at it that way, actually, 
actually makes me like the film a little bit better. Yeah, that's a really interesting connection that I didn't make. Connecting him making this out of frustration, possibly this is my interpretation, but I like it. And then adding on to that, like the audience asking him after going through this whole experience, the audience asking him, What do you want from me? And him, him as a creator just saying, I want your love. <laughs> like, yeah. That's yeah. a really fun interpretation. That's that's absolutely what I'm walking away with from this movie. <laughs> 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 no, that that blends really well with your your, your yeah. statement of him being frustrated, right? For sure, and like a love letter to the audience, <laughs> yeah. or uh, an ultimatum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I I just see Alex Garland as this incredibly thoughtful. He's my favorite writer, um, and my I was frustrated watching this because I walk into certain films looking to like it, and sometimes I will contort myself into trying to like it even though in my heart i'm like you don't like this wes um and so i don't i don't like this movie and it took me a little while after watching it to you know kind of come to grips to that uh but whether i'm sitting through an alex garland film or danny boyle or uh, uh christopher nolan my intention is walking in i'm going to enjoy this uh because these are my favorite creators um and then they they have to work at making me not like it um, because I go in with so much goodwill and and maybe that's even poisoning the the, the tree there because I go in anticipating greatness and uh, there's only so many inceptions a, a human being can come up with <laughs> you know how many yes. times can you you create 28 days later or you know sunshine um which i think sunshine is the best analog to this film um based on some of the conversation within it but you you only have so many of those in you as a, as a human being uh although i guess shakespeare might disagree but yeah i don't know man i think uh i'll dive into some of these notes and you yeah. jump in and do your thing cinematography this is brief uh but one of the things I liked was the uh, the flashback conversation with James in the, in the bedroom. We're sitting there and we're listening to them argue. Um, and he starts threatening her with suicide. He's like, I'm going to kill myself. That's what you're going to do to me. Uh, and you got to live with it, right? Uh, there's just no ownership at all. Um, and she's just freaking out, rightly so. Um, like, what are you saying? You can't put that on me. Um, and the way they're shooting this is through these clean singles. So a clean single is when you're not, you're, you're framing one person without the other person in the frame. So even though there's two of them in the room, whenever we're looking at Harper, we're only looking at Harper. Um, we don't see like a little bit of shoulder from James. And likewise, when we're looking at James, uh, we don't see any like pieces of Harper within the frame. So that's a clean single. Whereas normally, uh, it's pretty common to use what you call a, a an over-the-shoulder shot, which is a dirty single, so that you might be looking at Harper, but you kind of frame part of the shoulder and head of James within the frame uh, to help frame her up a little bit. And so there's aesthetically pleasing aspects to that, uh, but there's also storytelling reasons why you might not do that and why you might do that uh, in the first place. And so for a clean single... It drives home the idea that they are separate. They are disconnected by keeping them in their own frames. You're kind of saying they're in their own worlds. They are not together. And they're also framed with their faces right up to the edge of the frame. So that even though she's sitting on the left and he's sitting on the right, when we're looking at her, 
her face is right up to the right side of that frame instead of creating a bunch of space between her and James. Uh, they're both close together physically, but also uh, worlds apart. And by dramatizing that framing, right, it heightens their disconnect because her face is right up to the edge. Uh, and it kind of says that she's at the wall. They're at an impasse. There's no future. There's no room to move forward. This is the end. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, takeaways depending on the context of the scene. Whenever you frame someone that way, uh, that you could, you could, you know, kind of imbue the, the, the characters with. Um, and in this case, I think that's what they're saying. This is the end of the road for them. And just shoving her face to the edge of the frame that way, where she's looking to the edge of the screen, uh, is, is pretty dramatic and, you know, kind of reinforces emotionally where the relationship is at. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, story and writing we can start with the easy stuff um and it's stuff that largely you've you've, you've hinted at um but i think the lessons uh that he's driving home are big um and the main one is men are not held responsible by authority figures let alone themselves and we can see this through a, a couple of different venues the cops release that 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 guy, right? The naked stalker and trespasser. He gets set free. And that's already saying that this, he's not going to be punished for anything that he's done, which sucks because, you know, I, I don't know how much, you know, more sexually aggressive you can get before you get into actual assault <laughs> um, for someone of that, of that type. Right. It's like, Oh no, it wasn't enough. He's going to have to actually like rape you before we do anything about it. And even then shrug, Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe. It's, it's such an insidious and gross uh, issue in our society. Um, Western culture at large, I don't know about, you know, the other cultures. I assume it's probably not too different over there, um, wherever else you're talking about in the world. And I would, I would like to add to that, that one of the reasons I kind of didn't like it is because probably a lot of it is true. And this mm. is a good point, yeah. you know, it's probably just me, you know, as but it's probably just me just being uncomfortable with the truth of what I'm seeing, probably, yeah. to be honest. You know? Yeah, that's fair. It sucks to look into the mirror of our culture and say, uh, this is the way it is. Maybe you can help. Maybe you can't. All you can do is try and recognize this is the mirror of our culture um, and look into it uh, with honesty. The other thing, the interesting thing about the cop uh, was his his badge number was 1532. Um, which I felt like this is probably a subtle Bible reference. Anytime I see big numbers like that in context of a heavily religious overtoned film, uh, I start looking for connections with biblical, you know, verses. Uh, and there's a lot of 1532s in the Bible. I couldn't quite drill down what the reference is. Maybe it's, it's buried in the scene somewhere else. Uh, my best guess was Proverbs 1532, which was, those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. Um, and so it's the idea that this cop is the one who's supposed to, you know, hold discipline true. And, um, and, and he's, he's not, he's not taking correction seriously. Um, yeah. And so I don't know, I, there might be something else better in there, uh, with 1532, but, or nothing, maybe he just really likes those numbers and, told his set designer or costume wardrobe person to, uh, to, to just stitch it in, whatever. The other authority figures not holding people responsible uh, that I think is much bigger or maybe as big, um, but historically bigger, 
is the Catholic Church um, via the vicar, right? Says, and we heard it in the, uh, the the trailer, says she should have forgiven her husband for beating her, for striking her, however you want to label it. And she asks, he's asking her, do you wonder why you drove him to it? She's like, I didn't drive him to it. Well, did you give him a chance to apologize? What? Might he still be alive if you gave him a chance to apologize? Like she's in every way she she's being held responsible for everything she didn't do. Right. The husband hit her and her job was to forgive him. And then he killed himself and her job is to find herself responsible for it. Like this is something he did twice. These are two things he did and she's being held accountable for it. That's insanity, of course. Um, and uh, the larger connection here is that apparently, and this was really interesting timing. Freakonomics just put out a uh, an episode, um, one of the podcasts I listened to, about during the lockdowns, was there a spike in domestic violence? Uh, and... In exploring that question, and I'll invite you to go listen to that because there's a lot of interesting avenues that they, they kind of dip into. But one of the things he, he throws out there uh, very lightly was the Catholic Church has a bad history of allowing men to beat their wives, to abuse women in their house, and which was deemed okay if it was uh, to whatever, better their soul or protect their soul or some, you know, stupid bullshit. But even in modern times, they're still largely telling women to forgive their husband. Oh, he hits you. Well, it's your job to forgive him and to not change anything. Like it's pretty gross. And, um, that's, that's the, the tone because I guess my understanding of Catholicism is, uh, divorce is not allowed. Um, I, there are dispensations granted, but, uh, there are few and far between, um, and so, yeah, I don't know that I think that's the point, regardless of my views or, or right or wrong. I think that's the idea that Alex Garland is driving at, uh, the Catholic church excuses this behavior, um, and historically has always done so. Yeah. That's, it's yeah. A- I mean, I, I totally agree. And that's true. Like, you know, divorce is not like an option in the Catholic church. I would argue also that it's not just about the Catholic church. It's about a man in it's about a man in that particular powerful position hmm. in general, right? The religious, the religious position, because we, we have a, uh, uh, an officer as well uh, of the law. We have um, an owner of a house. We have the, you know, the vicar we have. It, it, so yes. And I totally agree with that, that, that is, that is how the Catholic church does view it. Right. That's how I've always been brought up. That's not even a, it's not an option. And then, um, but to take it a step further, I just, mm-hmm. th- I think it's just a, like a, a, another man in a position of power where, and not just power, but like a position of like, of that allows you to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, he sits down and you believe him. Like I believed him at first. I thought, well, not when I saw him in the back of the church after she screams and he's just like staring at her and then he walks off. I'm like, oh, that's creepy. But later on, he has, this is one of the amazing things about, about, about him. Uh, what, what is it? Sorry, Rory Kinnear is that like, I believe his face when he seems to, to be on her side. 
until he puts his hand on her leg, I'm, I'm like, wow, he's like intrigued and interested and wants to help. Um, and I think that is all, that's also a brilliant storytelling piece from, from Alex that is amazing where it's, it's, it brings you in as a viewer to trust this guy. He's a man of the cloth. He's, he protects her from the kid, you know, who's like very aggressive and seems freaky cause he's wearing a mask and, and then says, Hey, let's talk, you know, like wants to help her, brings her in, brings you in. And then like goes down that terrible, terrible road. But I, yeah, yeah. So I agree with you, but I, I love, cause I was going to bring that moment up too. When he puts his hand on her leg was an incredible moment because of the way she reacts and that she does not. Right. And yes. There, there are mountains of like, I don't know if I want to call it symbolism, but just reality that it's just sitting right there because on the one hand, yes, you have an authority figure. So maybe she's not reacting because she really does trust him. And that's kind of the assumption, but maybe she's not reacting because to react would invite uh, heightening the moment and potential violence ensuing misinterpreting. And so there's all this, uh, Tension, I'm sure, you know, being a woman watching that uh, was a radically different experience um, from me watching that because in our culture, I'm sure there are a lot of men who feel too comfortable around women touching them, being very handsy. Um, and you have to decide as a as as a woman, how do I react to this? Should I react? Uh, what's that going to mean? Is that going to make things worse? How do I escape the situation? And so. I feel like there's this brief moment of discomfort before um, as I'm watching her react and waiting to see what is she going to do. And it, and it, none of it's there and it's, it makes it all the worse because I'm wanting her to react and she doesn't. And then yeah. it ultimately, I feel like it's just breeding more trust when she's uh, allowing him this place of, you know, confidant, right? She's, she's responding to him. He's like, you how do you feel like haunted she's like yeah and she feels like oh someone understands it someone's getting it um and from there eventually there's this twist of the knife where it's like nope actually um i'm not on your side uh, i'm i'm doing something completely different and it's way worse <laughs> um yeah it's a yeah that's a really fascinating moment um which i'll touch back on here momentarily yeah so and then and then she walks away and it gets so much more creepy because he puts his hand where she was sitting to feel the warmth of her butt and you're just like oh you're creepy oh, um man. yeah Roy Kinnear really hats off to you buddy because that was everything you're doing in this film is so nuanced and so specific to these archetypes uh that we're looking at um and you just yeah. nail it yeah, as much as I, and here's the other thing I could, and I really want to attack the Catholic church specifically sure. because I hate it. I, I'm, I'm passionately, I just, I fucking hate it. Um, cause I grew up in it. I know what it's all about and I don't care who you are. I, I, I just know, but I, I really want to try to look at it in a, in a, in a larger, larger picture of. Oh, sure. Uh, I think you yeah. have to do both because interpreting yeah. the writer, you can't just ignore ever all the Catholic symbolism that's in here. <clears throat> and, oh, yeah. And Christianity oh, yeah. at large. But I think you're you're still right in the sense that it's still all within context of a patriarchal 
patriarchal uh, structure, you know, throughout the world and throughout yeah. history. Um, yeah. And which I think makes the Catholic church all the more important because they've had a large hand in that um, and really? shaping modern day circumstances. Maybe um, one of the biggest. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's all important and, you mm-hmm. know, keep, keep jumping in about the larger context for oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So from here we can talk about symbolism. Oh God, because oh, here we go. There yeah, we go. This is symbolism overload. And this is one of the big mistakes I would call that, that I think he makes. There's just too much symbolism. For one, we have a lot of Christian church Catholic references, which is fine. We, you know, you have Adam and Eve, right? The forbidden fruit. Um, and it's all there on the uh, b- baptismal font, uh, that, that water container stone statue looking thing, right? With, uh, with Adam on one side and Eve on the other. Um, and we, we get a good look at Eve's, uh, uh, uh baby place. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, you have, on that bench scene behind the vicar, as we're looking at him in those medium shots, you have there, there's a cross sitting behind him and it's laying down on the side. So there's some kind of idea that, you know, the, maybe the church fell down on the job or the, the church isn't as upright as it you know needs to be. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's wrong. However you want to put it. Um, and then there's probably some light Bible re- verse references, you know, in there. And of course, you know, just blanket for no, 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 forbidden fruit. Mustn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so plenty of Christianity being referenced here, right? Especially the, the Adam uh, getting really bludgeoned over the face with it, you know, with sticking uh, leaves in his face and what have you. Okay. Then on a whole other some, some line of symbolism, you have all these Greek references which I think is where you start to, to go astray. Homer is being referenced, right? When the, the vicar is in the bathroom, uh, he starts quoting, I don't know, the Iliad. I couldn't find the the prose within the Iliad. So maybe it's not, maybe it's a kind of- I think you're right. His, his own interpretation of the Iliad. But he says something along the lines of like, bodies all around him and Agamemnon dead. And so Agamemnon obviously is a reference to the Iliad. And- Agamemnon's an interesting character because he was killed by his wife. And so there's some symbolism being, being, you know, heaped in there. And um, I would guess that James is a representation of Agamemnon, um, James being her ex-husband. And then he says, as the vicar, I've decided you're an expert in carnality. This is the power you have. You're singing to me, not as Ulysses, but as sailor to dash me on the rocks of this cave and he's talking about her vagina right and so ulysses is the latin version of odysseus which seems unnecessarily convoluted um to go from agamemnon uh to ulysses uh yeah it's it's a it's a lot and of course this reference here is that uh is within the odyssey and 
the Odyssey does not contain Agamemnon, I believe. Uh, I, I would need like Jenny, your wife on standby in order to like <laughs> piece all this together uh, without yeah. the internet. But I don't think Agamemnon is in the Odyssey and this reference that he's making um, that you're singing to me, at, at, not as Ulysses, but as sailor to dash me on the rocks of this cave is a reference to the sirens in the Odyssey when the sirens are singing to Odysseus, right? They, the sirens are this, uh, this Greek monster that ensnare sailors with beautiful songs in order to kill them. Um, I'm guessing they eat them, but I don't really remember exactly what they do with their, with their, I don't know, captors, probably not what the captors are hoping for, whatever it is. <laughs> um, okay. And then along those same lines, we go from sirens to harpies. Um, not herpes, <laughs> harpies. Uh, and so what is a harpy? I think Harper, her name is a reference to a harpy. Um, and harpies were uh, Greek mythological monsters of a bird with a human female face. So we see that the this emblemized when we see the little boy place his little mask of the woman's face on the bird's head. At the end, when she starts hearing the scratching coming from the kitchen, right? She walks back in um, and finds a little boy sitting at the counter and he's wiggling the dead bird. I was uh, wondering what the hell that was. Right. What and, was going on there? And yeah. it's, a, it's a visual reference, reference to a harpy is my takeaway anyway. Uh, you would have to crawl inside the brain of uh, Alex Garland or have him birth uh, his ideas. <laughs> Ooh, please, no. <laughs> yeah. um, and so what are harpies? Harpies are kind of considered evil, considered destructive, but they also brought evildoers to punishment. And so they would like lift up an evildoer and bring them to whatever the gods of Hades or something um, to, to, you know, have their punishment uh, exacted upon them. And so if she's a harpy, right, then she is here to bring men to their punishment, uh, which would give some light to the very last scene that we we already just talked about a second ago uh, with James. But we'll, we'll we're still getting to that. We're still under symbolism, Todd. Stop rushing me. <laughs> and so I think, and from here, there's some other symbols that are maybe there, maybe not. I don't know. The tunnel with the echo seemed very belabored. Uh, if it didn't have some kind of symbolism to it, I couldn't tell you exactly what that symbolism is. It could be like a birth canal. Um, uh, it could be right. The, the echo I know had this unnaturally long life. <laughs> and so maybe there's something in there. Um, but then there's also Jeffrey's face being replicated everywhere. That's uh, clear symbolism as a stand in for all men, I, I would guess. But just in accumulating the amount of symbolism throughout this film, uh, you have to factor that in as another piece of symbolism. There's also the dandelion seeds blowing mm -hmm. into the wind, right? Um, a seed, one of those seeds uh, falls into the eye of a deer's rotting corpse. Um, and of course, we're introduced to the, the dandelion blowing into the wind uh, within like 30 seconds uh, of the beginning, right? We see the first scene is her screaming, uh, reverse point of view of James falling in the window and then we cut to the dandelion blowing into the wind and then we cut to her driving all over the place um, into the countryside and so you know it's a pretty breathless sequence of symbolism throughout this film um, but then we also towards the end uh, we see Adam blowing a dandelion towards her and we see Harper inhale one of those seeds 
Um, and so dandelion seeds blowing into the wind can symbolize, I think, to me, whenever I think about it, two different things. The first one is as kids, we would make a wish and blow on the, the seed, right? And that become like a wishbone kind of thing. Um, the other version of that is uh, semen and, and, and transpermia or, you know, just a reproductive, yeah, sperm, I guess. It's just yeah. kind of this very blunt force trauma version of reproduction. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, you have that and her inhaling one might have some symbolic uh, representation for how we take the the end sequence, which we're still not there. And then there's also some, I guess it's symbolism. It never really turns into anything. So I have to have to call this symbolism because it's never overtly, you know, connected to anything else, which is the cell phone. Um, there's all the static inserts of like Jeffrey yelling or whatever the first time she calls her sister when she gets to the uh the countryside house um she's on the phone with her sister and she gets all the static and we see like inserts of jeffrey yelling or someone some guy yelling there's no reason to not think it's jeffrey um and then later in the film there's all these signal interruptions when she's talking to her sister again trying to give her the address and she gets interrupted again that is never fully explained. So there's no other way that I can take it other than it's symbolism. And again, this is all under the reference, my, my headline of symbolism overload. <laughs> like yeah, we're, we're just heaping too much symbolism uh, onto the audience to really pull away anything. Um, but it also kind of calls into the editing um, when you're talking about the symbol, uh, the, the cell phone static inserts, there's also some weird editing towards the end when she's fleeing the house to get to her car she's escaping the bathroom right when he's the priest or the vicar is raping her or trying to rape her it's not 100 clear what the hell is happening right there but instead of her getting raped she inserts the blade into his you know side or stomach i i would i i'm pretty sure it's the side as some kind of again symbolic reference to adam um and and the rib uh, so she's stabbing him in the rib um is is my assumption there and then she flees and we see her run out the house get into the car but then we cut back into the house and in slow motion watch her stumble through like the the hallway towards the door and again it's just symbolism overload i don't really know why we're intercutting her uh still escaping the house as if she never left and so you in can different ways it was like it, she was escaping in different ways. Sometimes she would stumble or she would stop and grab their keys or something. But it was like three, three different ways that they did that. I was curious. I was confused about that too. And so you could say that part of her was raped and this is her mental reality of her mm. trying to escape and she never escapes. But I don't think that works because of the very last thing that I'm going to point out. But from there, um, we have... The birth sequence, uh, which is another whole symbolic thing, right? It's probably pointing out how broken men create more broken men. And ultimately, it's up to women via Harper to break the sequence via the axe. Um, Yet another symbol that is not really uh, fleshed out into anything meaningful other than her sister pointing at the axe and saying, uh, you need to... I'm going to take that axe and chop his dick off, right? That's what her sister says on the phone. And so there's some symbolism that the axe represents castrating men or at least um, handing out justice 
in in your own brute way. Fine, cool, whatever. And then after that, the so the birth sequence seems important because uh, men birthing men, and creating men, and creating these broken, more broken men. Um, and if it's ultimately up to women, uh, then when Harper's sister finally arrives, uh, we find out that she herself is pregnant. And now it's just Harper, her pregnant sister, and there are no more men in the picture, right? They, they were all effectively killed off through the symbolism of Rory Kinnear playing all these men characters, uh, that were ultimately taken over by James, who we can assume was dealt with. Uh, but perhaps symbolically also, maybe we can infer that Harper herself is pregnant. Um, and maybe that's the symbolism of the dandelion being in held, cutting James out of the picture and holding that leaf. Cause at the end, the last frame is her seeing her sister and she's kind of holding this little baby leaf. And so maybe that's the kind of symbolic idea that women now are in charge moving forward. Um, maybe the patriarchy's over, um, the men have been castrated and now it's time to move forward. I don't know, but, uh, there's just so much symbolism that it's just a big magpie. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I, I, I mean, it was gross and, and, and weird, but I, I feel like I kind of, I don't know if I got it correct, but I feel like I, I like at first was like, what the fuck is happening during the birth scene? But then I started getting it. Yeah. Right. And I, th- the same thing that you just said of, of, you know, broken men beget broken men. And that ha- that's how it's been. Right. And, but I feel, I, one other thing that I kind of got from that was it was the most broken man begetting a little bit less of a broken man or a broken man in a different way. Hmm. That's kind of it, what it seemed. Cause it was the Adam guy, um, with all the leaves and everything on him. And then, it, it birthed different versions of that man throughout until it got to James. And it just felt like each one was a little bit, I mean, they were broken completely, but they were a little bit less in it or in a different way. Right. So James at the end was not, he was more verbally aggressive than he was, you know, physically like, you know, trying to rape her and things like that. So he was just sitting on the couch um, at the end. So, you know, it was, it was a progression, right? And so that might be an argument for what you were, for your suggestion of, of now maybe the patriarch, this is how the patriarchy ends, right? And how women take back or, or yeah, take, take the power or take not the power, but take the, the, the guidance, right? Or the, 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 the direction, uh, capability of the future of man, of men, right? As mothers or as wives, partners, however you want to, however you want to call it. It seemed like, it seemed like that because then, yeah, the man got the last word, you know, but he's wrong. So I don't know what that, I don't know what that means if anything, but yeah. Yeah. So there's this fundamental disconnect between, and it's kind of repeating what you already said, uh, with James. So that whole final sequence, right? Adam returns and his face is now exactly like the baptismal font. 
um, that we see, you know, throughout the film and they intercut it, you know, still looking at it in this kind of blood red lighting and maybe even blood overflowing onto it. I don't remember. There's so many things happening. And he gives birth to the boy. The boy births the priest. The priest births in the doorway through his spine, Jeffrey. And then Jeffrey's ankle is broken, right? And then he cries and he births James through his mouth, um, feet first. I didn't really watch it the first time uh, because I just... I will say the visual effects were absolutely incredible. Like, Oh man, that deserves an award for sure. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if any, anything else does. Well, maybe some of the acting Rory Kinnear probably deserves a, uh, a nod somewhere along the line. And, and so he comes out feet first. Uh, and then he, James of course sits on the couch, right? Broken foot, arm spliced, much not like, pregnant, not pregnant. Um, much like he was the way she, she last saw him, right. Um, impaled by the fence and sits on the couch with her and says, this is what you did still not owning his own decisions. Um, and she asks him, right. What do you want from me? Your love. And then she holds an ax and thinks. And from there, the real question is, was this all real? And I think we have to say yes, because when the sister arrives, the, the car is there damaged, right? There's this bloody trail going in to the house. And so the only real conclusion is that we, we have to say it all really happened. And yeah, I don't know. I think I've punched myself out at this point. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I think, I think there's, there's just so many ways that you could look at it. It feels, it feels real. It feels like the point of it was conjecture, right? Yeah. How do you feel? you know, what do you think it's about? I think the, I'm not opposed to this heavy level of symbolism. I think he mixed too many metaphors too deeply. It's one thing to make a Shakespeare reference like, Oh, this house is at least 500 years old, like Shakespeare or pre, like it could have been, you know, before Shakespeare's time. I think that's one thing, right? That's another thing to start quoting Romeo and Juliet and start, and then also quoting, you know, uh, or symbolizing Adam and Eve. And then, and he didn't quote Romeo and Juliet. I'm just saying no, you wouldn't want to do that. It's one thing to reference Shakespeare. It's another thing to dive deep into Shakespeare. Like he went heavy on Greek mythology in all kinds of directions. He went heavy on Christian mythology um, and all kind. And I think this is interesting just as a complete side rant that we don't call it Christian mythology yet. Right. We call Greek uh, stuff mythology we don't call it greek religion and right. the only difference really is the amount of people who practice these things who practice it exactly <laughs> yeah. is it mythology well yeah if it's if, if if you deem it fake now that's right or not real now <laughs> so you have all this christian mythos uh heavily steeped in the film along with all this greek mythology heavily steeped and then along that greek you know mythos like the harpy uh you also have i mean it's just it's so much uh, mythology. I think it works far better whenever you have a strong story that has all these references in it uh, because you can't enjoy this movie. Uh, I could probably just stop there. You can't enjoy this movie. <laughs> yeah, It's not a movie to be enjoyed. But if you have a really strong through line where the story works on its own and then 
and and any audience member can walk away saying, man, that story really punched me when XYZ happened. And then nerds like you and I can walk away and say, man, that story was really good. Did you catch the symbolism of mm-hmm. Eve and how she was a representation of Eve and taking back the garden, right? Or whatever. Like, instead, this movie is, you cannot appreciate it and except through the lens of symbolism. Yeah. And you really can't. I don't... I don't think you can watch this movie and and love it without like really heavily and in, being invested in the symbolism of it all. Um, and I mean, to each their own. If you love this movie for those things, kudos to you. Uh, that's going to be a fraction of your audience, um, as opposed to most people really want to connect with the story first and foremost, um, and then peel back the layers. This is all onion, no layer. <laughs> uh, and and it it. it it's not good uh, for that for that reason. And I would liken it as opposed to something like Denis Villeneuve uh, uh, Enemy, where it's like, man, you can enjoy that on its surface, but it's still going to punch you in the face with some really heavy symbolism that's going to make you like wrinkle your brain trying to trying to figure out what you just saw. Uh, but it still emotionally all works really, really well on a surface level. This movie does not work on a surface level um, at all to me and to, to mm-hmm. my two viewings, which I didn't want to go back for a second viewing, but wow, yeah. I felt like I needed to in order to try and like I, I, I was practicing stenography, uh, you know, in my seat where I was just writing every single thing down. Like I, I may have wrote the, the screenplay on my on my elbow napkin. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, the last thing I'll say is it's, you know, it's obviously about toxic masculinity. Uh, it's about the, the, the evolution of that. It's about the levels of that. And I get it, you know, but I totally agree with you. I think it's just the symbolism is just all over the place and it's constantly changing too and evolving. And so, you know, like you, you mentioned enemy earlier, you know, I think the symbolism there is, is steady throughout mm-hmm. right um and that that's the difference between the two there's a lot there but it's steady here there's a lot but it's constantly evolving and changing maybe that's the point also and maybe you know to your point at the very beginning of this he's just sick and tired of of hollywood in general and of making movies just for you know like to to be to be critically claimed or to to be you know to understood to be understood Maybe the point of this is is to have these conversations and it's like I'm going to make a movie that I that I don't care if anybody likes. It's just whatever it, you know explodes out of me, <laughs> births out of me, and you know to to make a pun uh, there, pun intended. Um, uh, and maybe that's the point, you know. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, sure, I get it. It's just yeah, I, I wouldn't want to watch it a second time for sure. But I think. And that's that's so frustrating because I think a movie like this is necessary. You know, I said at the beginning, you know, sometimes there's a lot of like, uh, you know, anti, anti man, you know, mm-hmm. stuff that's that's around, and that's that's fine to a point. But I think you know, a story like this where you're trying to get across a point of toxic masculinity, I think it needs to be better. <laughs> I mean, it needs to be like, yes, it's direct, but it's all over the place. You know, uh, and so I just I feel like it should be done better so that it gets to a wider audience and that that can actually get out there in a way that it's that's, you know, digestible to millions more because it's important. 
I don't, I don't want to diminish that. I want to, I want to say, I know it exists and I know we need to do better as men. Absolutely. But, uh, this ain't the way to do it. I feel like. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, whatever he wanted to say, um, uh, the message gets lost whenever you, you bury it so deeply into, you know, symbolic things. Um, yeah. So if you want people to walk away with a, with a nice lesson about men, don't punch, don't, don't bludgeon us behind the back, you know, uh, over the head, like look us in the eye and then, and then punch us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, regardless, I'm, I'm still excited about whatever he puts out next. Um, but oh, yeah, but there is something interesting that happens when I watch, you know, this or, or some other films of people I respect, which is this, uh, uh, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Like, yes, I, I, yes. Oh, he is human. Yeah, yeah. It's it's nice to be reminded that you know even my heroes, you know, aren't are imperfect, and even if they're executing like at a really high level, uh, it's still there's room, there's room. Um, and so I'm like, okay, you know what? I don't feel bad if I take a swing and I miss. the mm. The important part is to take your swings. Um, and I hope to God, Alex Garland keeps making movies. I want to keep seeing him make shows. Um, devs was incredible. Uh, but I want to see him, you know, keep making films that stand alone and these nice yeah. hour and a half to two hour, you know, sequences. Uh, Agreed. That's, I think that's his strong suit for yeah. sure. Yeah. Nice. Um, okay. What are you going to recommend this week? Yeah. Do you want to guess? Oh, uh, my guess was Slumdog Millionaire. No, that why did you guess that? <laughs> Just random guess. That's a good guess, I guess. Right. But no, no, I'm gonna recommend. I just finished uh, the first half. Of it. I'm gonna recommend Stranger Things four. I hmm. uh, really, really, in, really enjoyed it. Yep. I don't want to say anything about it, but I like what they've done. I think we can uh, talk about that after we hop off. Nice. I'm gonna recommend uh, this movie called The One I Love. It's by Charlie McDaniels. This was a weird experience and frustrating experience for me. I was following this guy on Twitter for, for years and it, it was this random dude that had this Twitter account called uh, the girls upstairs above me, the girls who live above me um, or something like that. And it was this guy who lived in LA, uh, was going to school and the walls in his apartment were incredibly thin and so he could just hear what, you know, the, the women, these two college girls living above him would say, and they would just say outrageously dumb things. Oh um, my gosh. That's and it amazing. was freaking hysterical. And he might tack on some little, you know, comment about it, which usually wasn't that funny, but the, the things that they would say, he, and he pointed out were just unbelievably funny. And then one day out of the blue, he says, Hey, check out my new movie called the one I love. And I was like, Oh God, some rando made a movie. And then I, I pull up the trailer and it's got like Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss. And I'm like, wait, what, what are you, what? And then I watched the trailer and it looked incredible. And I was like, this can't be happening. I'm just walking in the wilderness right now. And (laughs) this random account made an incredible movie with Duplass and Elizabeth Moss. And so I went and watched it and it was excellent. It's a great, great little indie film. 
um, by Charlie uh, McDowell. I think I just said McDaniel. Um, I think it's Charlie McDowell. <laughs> Sorry, I probably should have looked that up. Um, but I want to say he's the the son of. I'm going to double check before I butcher this. Mary Steenburgen. Yes, Mary Steenburgen and Malcolm McDowell, um, two Hollywood heavyweights. Um, and so, not to say that that's why he got his break, um, though I'm sure it doesn't hurt. Didn't hurt. Yeah. yeah. But the this regardless, the script is phenomenal, and he directed the absolute hell out of it. Uh, and so, if you want a, a nice abstract indie film that really packs a punch. It's a it's a small film, uh, but it's brilliant. I highly, highly recommend the one I love. Yeah. I won't tell you what wow. it's about. Is it streaming somewhere? I, I would like to see it. I think it's streaming on Netflix the last time I, I checked. Um, okay. I will double check right now. And it is streaming no on HBO Max. Got it. It was streaming on HBO uh Netflix for a bit, but now it's on HBO. And so yeah. Uh, it's fantastic. I think you will really enjoy it. And I would recommend don't look up anything. It's about two people who go for marriage counseling. Uh, it's got Ted Danson as their marriage counselor. Uh, and it's oh my really, gosh. yeah, 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 yeah. He just knocked it out of the park. And so I, I don't think you should look up anything beyond that. It's a, it's a very intimate film. It's so good. Um, okay. Yeah. So stay tuned yeah. for oh no we have a short spotlight this week um there's a there's an awesome musician on youtube uh called the interloper and he uh he made a, a film or a, a new track called making up is the best part um todd what do you know about this <laughs> uh i guess it's me um yeah so i i i sometimes uh make synth tracks on my synthesizers and and put them out. And, uh, when I'm feeling froggy, I feel like I, I got something that's interesting or whatever. And yeah, that was the most recent one that I did, I, I guess a, a week, a couple weeks ago. And yeah, it's just a fun little, fun little thing. I have a few others on there too, but I'm going to start posting more for sure. So. Nice. Thank you, man. Yeah. Appreciate that. Check that out. I'll embed it in the show notes, which you can find at the slash men, but stay tuned for next week. And we're going we're gonna to do a, a user request. There's another film that I was thinking about doing. We'll do it after that. I just, I need a palate cleanser. Um, uh, I agree. And so <laughs> we're going to cleanse the palates with some Marvel goodness. Uh, we're going to look at Captain America Civil War. This was a listener request. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. Um, and if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe. Drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our podcast and leave us a note if there's something you want us to talk about kinds of things you find interesting um or if you just want to rave about all things men and how we get it wrong and how we just mansplained for the last hour about men um let us know what you really think um politely <laughs> and, and yeah. of course you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash men annalise that's that's who <laughs> recommended annalise recommended uh, captain america civil war sorry nice cool that. thanks uh yeah so our quote of the day this is a good one from jk rowling this is right up our alley that we talk about all the time that you mentioned earlier uh, ultimately wouldn't you rather be the person who actually finished the project you're dreaming about rather than the one who talks about always having wanted to and that that's just a great way of saying the same thing which is you know you only live once if there's something you want to do, find a way to do it. And what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, it makes me think of this too, is that uh, perfection is the enemy of good, which means you work 
you work really hard to make it as good as you possibly can. But at the end of the day, it has to, you just have to do it. You just have to do it. Actually doing it uh, is more important. Taking steps to do it is more important than making it perfect. I think that if you, you know, to the point of uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino has a great thing, great saying, and I don't know how true it nas- actually is, but I like hearing it, which is if you love, and he's talking about cinema, but I think it goes with anything. If you love cinema, if you love movies and it is your life. You absolutely adore it. You cannot help but make a good, a great movie. And I don't, I don't know how accurate that is. I think you can still make a shitty movie even if you love <laughs> love film or filmmaking. But I think that the point there is that it will make you take action. It will make you make you actually do it. And I think I, I think this is a great quote that states that in, a, in an interesting way. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes it can feel a little easy to hear someone like J.K. Rowling or Stephen King say, hey, man, just do it, you know, because they had this large body of brilliant work. But it's also encouraging because to me, it's, it's also hinting at, her own hurdles that she had to get over. It's it's easy to have done something. It's really hard to say you want to do something when everyone that I know always wants to have done something. The doing is the hardest part, man. Running a marathon is not nearly as fun as having run a marathon. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well said. Well said. You no, know, it's just pain. It's agony. Um, and you know, with art, it's it's just debilitating at times to say. Am I failing? Am I getting it wrong? Um, And ultimately, maybe. But there's only one way that you're going to find out. Uh, And it's it's by finishing it and doing it. Um, So wherever you're at in your your creative process, you know, um, just step out, try it, do it. You know, Uh, it's 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 better to 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 find out and 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 instead of just dreaming and and wishing and hoping. Yeah. And the easy. the, the easiest way to think about this also to me is to, is the idea of falling in love with the process rather than the result. If you love the process, then that's a much easier thing. Cause you're not thinking, how do I get to the end? How do I make this thing? You, you have no idea. You have no idea. Don't worry about the end. Worry about the decision you're making right now. Cause that, and loving that process. I mean, I, uh, um, Kobe Bryant is, is like a, a, a absolute he's a he was a subscriber to this love the process because that's the dream the actual making the movie is the dream when it's done then you just have a movie what then okay you move on to the next one but it's if you love the process of it then all of a sudden it's like i'm getting to do my dream which is making films i think I i think that's my favorite you know part about why i love what i do it's like people sometimes ask you know what's what my favorite part of the process is and i love it all i love creating i love outlining Uh, i spend a lot of time in each phase and i really enjoy every phase because just dreaming up new ideas is really fun and then figuring out like how does it all structure and play together that's really fun and then figuring out how to make these things reality how to cast it and how to bring people together and then you get to be on set and that's really fun that's its own world uh, post-production is really fun because you get to see it all kind of come together um, and and then I think the least fun part is actually putting it out like I yeah. I want as little to do with that part of the process as possible <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. like creating I want to stay in this other phase of you know thinking and, and creating and finishing and 
moving on to like you just said and then you get to move on to the next thing uh, i'm very sure. much looking forward to working on your on your your film very yeah. much looking forward to that yeah that, like i said it's agony and it's debilitating <laughs> yeah but that's that's the point right yeah i guess so yeah, yeah. terrified yeah Anyway, thank you guys so much for joining us. This was a very interesting episode. I don't even know what to say about it. Uh, like Wes said, make sure to, to subscribe, review us on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, make a suggestion. If there's a film that, that uh, you'd like us to cover, please suggest it. Maybe we'll do it. And share us with your friends. All of that helps a, a ton. We really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Movies.